Sure. And so basically the reason that I wanted to start the recorder is because it's unusual to find a new student calling who is absolutely raw. Almost all of the students that call have already uh, established a meditation practice. And um, actually what that means then is, is that they've got a lot to unlearn. But uh, for starting raw, there's a lot that you may not have to unlearn. You can just start learning to do the practice correctly. Okay. And so um, while it's a very easy practice, uh, conceptually, in order to understand it from that easy perspective, we have to do some description because the normal student already has a lot of misconceptions, almost as if, um, imagine that there is a beautiful palace about 100 meters away, and it's a straight path just from here to there. You just go right there. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. in between, there's a forest. And so you can't see that palace. And so you don't even know which direction to go. Okay. okay. So in that regard, the problem is, is that people get lost in the forest because it only, uh, they don't even know which direction to go. And there's a few key ingredients or a few particular directions that we can have would be like follow the breadcrumbs. Or follow the money. And that would then would be a very, very simple um, uh, guide that if we just follow the money or follow the crumbs or follow the heart or whatever like that, then we can certainly get to the palace, right? So we have to understand that there are some uh, easy solutions to a very naughty problem. The naughty problem is, is that we have created a forest of uh, uh, to, that obscures what life really is all about. And that one of the major changes that can be brought about is a very simple thing, something like follow the breadcrumbs. And that would <coughs> this is, um, one could say, the major teaching of the Buddha, the number one teaching of the Buddha uh would be in fact he said it like this that there is only one teaching i teach only one thing both formally and now <clears throat> i teach only dukkha dukkha naroda which means dukkha and the end of dukkha and we define dukkha as to be unsatisfying or unsatisfactory so you find a lot of stuff in your life that's unsatisfactory. And normally what people want to do when they see that unsatisfactoriness in their life is that they want to fix it, but they go about fixing it in the wrong way. Okay. But the teaching of the Buddha is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, which basically means that as soon as you see the Dukkha, 
you avoid it and sidestep it. This is a change that needs to be made. I do not understand that. I do not understand what a dukkha is. Dukkha means unsatisfying. In English, it is wrongly translated as suffering. But there's a whole lot uh, wrong with life other than just total suffering. Many people think suffering is a great big thing. An example of that is the downhill skier at high speed runs into a barrel of gasoline that explodes into flames when he hits it. And now he is laid up in the hospital with every broken bone and also in a cast so he can't scratch. Right? Pain, 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 pain. That's how we think of Duke uh, as uh, um, uh, suffering. Big deals, crosses, nails, you know, that kind of stuff. And so yep. this is how people begin to see uh, the teaching of the Buddha is uh, suffering and the end of suffering. But dukkha does not mean that. It means simply just anything that's unsatisfying. Because anything that's unsatisfying will get you to, to operate or behave to get rid of it. So, for instance, a mosquito doesn't make you suffer, but it'll sure make you behave in the sense of getting rid of it. Right? Okay, so this is what yeah. we mean by, by dukkha. Is dukkha means is that it's unsatisfying. Dukkha means that okay. it's unsatisfactory, that it's not good enough. It may be 99, but 99 is not 100. You see what I mean? Okay, yeah. so while you say your girlfriend is looking at the 99, you're looking at the 1% that's missing. Yeah. So, so you're looking at the dukkha yeah. instead of looking at the dukkha naroda. Now, the, the, the point about this teaching of the Buddha is, is that a lot of people in the West put a lot of Western mentality into it so that they think that the practice of meditation is like watching the breath means that you're seeing the dukkha, 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 more dukkha, investigate the dukkha, look at the dukkha, get deep into the dukkha, call it deep meditation, and we go deep diving into a deep bunch of crap, hoping there's insights in there. Well, this is not the teaching of the Buddha at all. That's just dukkha, 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 more dukkha, and maybe someday there will be no dukkha. But the teachings of the Buddha is as soon as you see the dukkha, come out of it immediately. This is also has to do with the teachings of uh, there are two kinds of thoughts. There are thoughts that are wholesome and thoughts that are unwholesome. Thoughts that are wholesome would be then hindrances from keeping you in being in a really, really good state. You have thoughts that prevent you from being in a good state, but you can also have thoughts that will put you into a really nice state. An example of that, or actually a good way of saying it is, is that you have spent your whole life talking yourself into feeling bad. Yeah. And now it's time for you to start talking yourself into feeling good. And many people, when they're doing some sort of breath meditation, they're still not doing that part about making sure that the thoughts are wholesome. And so whatever thoughts come up, hindering or otherwise, they're not really making a big change to the way that they think. 
so they're not changing any way uh, much about the way they feel. But with the practice of Anapanasati, which is actually um, uh, mindfulness of breathing, that means that basically we're looking at it this way. If you can control your breath to make the breathing wholesome, then you can also basically uh, in combination with that over the same period of time, uh, control the mind. If you can control the breath, you can control the mind. And if you can control the mind, you can control the breath. If yeah. you can control the mind and control the breathing, that means that now you've developed enough skills to where you can begin to control the way you feel. And if you can control the way you feel, you've got everything you need. You feel the way you want to feel. Ray, if you could, if you could feel the way you wanted to feel, how would you feel? Good. Okay, well, why don't you feel that way? There's always a, there's, there's always a sense that something's missing. Right, you, so what you basically do is you, you talk yourself out of feeling good. Yeah. But just a moment ago, you talked yourself into feeling good. You can say, yeah, I can feel any way I want to. And then you say, well, wait yeah. a minute, I can't do that yet. I got to wait until this piece is missing and then I can feel good. Once I get that, you've been looking for that missing piece your whole life and it's never found. Yeah. So why don't you give yourself permission to feel good without that missing piece? I feel I feel like I'm still not in control of my mind. Well, I believe you. You're not. But that's but if you could control your mind, then you could control your feelings. If you did have happy thoughts, then you would have happy feelings, right? But you don't have happy thoughts. You have ordinary thoughts, and so you feel ordinary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to add also my mom. My mom is the most negative person I, I have ever met in my life. Like, uh, she has no friends, no, um, nobody, nobody to talk to. All, all she does is complain about everything and all the thoughts coming into her mind are negative. Um, and as a child growing up, I, I would always like my parents divorced and I would rather stay like as far away from her. I was very scared to become her. And the more I grown up, the more I realized that I, I got I got very similar to her. And, uh, That's in, good in awareness. That yes. So now you know where you learned it all. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't know I don't know what 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 of it is uh, gen- genetics and what of it is uh is like the place I I was born because again I was trying as a kid to stay as far away from her. I uh, I would not talk to her for years at a time. But um, the first time that you saw that you had the thought that you should stay away from her, how old were you then? Like very young, six, seven, eight. Okay. Very, very young. Which means that you put up with her negativity for six, seven, or eight years before you finally decided that you got to stay away from that stuff 
and but by then you'd already become infected. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But in fact, uh, one of the typical stories is uh, the 16-year-old boy does not want to be like his dad at all. He rebels against the dad. They have great big arguments when he's a teenager. One goes storming off for another. And then at the age of 40, the guy recognizes that he's just like his dad. As hard as he wanted to be different than his dad, he's just like him. But in fact, what part of how he's just like him is, is because he rebelled from his dad the way his dad rebelled from his dad all the way back and still wound up just like him. Okay, so now that you've been able to at least put together, and you did that pretty young, you put together that all that negativity that you've got you got from your mom, but you still got it. You're still infected yeah. just because you know who infected you doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be infection free. That in fact, this is what's wrong with uh, in psychotherapy and psychology. They have the idea of psychological archaeology where uh, the client is um, encouraged to to dig deep back into the past to try to find out how things got started. Guess what? Mm -hmm. We don't need to know how things got started. All we need to know is where is the rudder to this ship? We don't need to know when it left port. All we need to know is how do we steer it? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of Well. You see that a lot of people are are uh, very, very uh, worried about how things got started. Like Big Bang Theory. I mean, look how many people argue over that. Guess what? Yeah. It doesn't matter how things got started. What matters is here we are. <laughs> yeah. But it's good that you do know that that stuff got started with your mom. But you can also recognize that you can change it. That this is a major point because a lot of people don't think that they can change. They think that once the personality is set, that it's set. This is who I am. There's a whole lot of language that we have in our um, uh, culture that points to that. Things like leopards are... Uh, yeah, I guess leopards. Leopards don't change their spots. Uh, uh, zebras don't change their stripes. Uh, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. They're just good old boys. Right? Uh, mm -hmm. Joe will be Joe, or Sally is just being Sally. Um, um, all things like um, you can take the country you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. You've heard things like that, right? Here's yeah. the big one. And the, the thing is, I believe. Huh? I believe those things. I believe okay. things things stay the same. Object emotion stays in motion. And object, uh, you know, that doesn't move, doesn't move. Okay. Well, that's what you what what you're saying then is is that. Um, that uh, you do believe that the ship has a rudder, you just don't know how to control the rudder, that the rudder is no, fixed. No, no. 
I, I, I believe that that change is something that is possible, but it's very, very hard. It's to go against the uh, against uh, every, everything that uh, nature is giving you. That's right. What, that's what I feel. Okay, so that but means that you don't know where the rudder is, or that the rudder is fixed, or that you got to go down to the bowels of the ship and turn the rudder by hand, or something like that. That you don't recognize that you've got a uh, a wheelhouse. Yeah. Okay, that's basically what we're saying. Then is is that um, there is a way for you to be able to change your mind. You do have a rudder, and once you find that rudder, you can figure out that you can change the direction of things. How they got started, we don't know. But now that things are rolling along, we can begin to make some tweaks and changes to them so that things head off in a different direction and we don't wind up crashing into things. But you know, boats don't have brakes. Did you know that? Yeah. Big ships I did don't not, have I, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. Right. Big ships don't have brakes. The captain or the pilot has to look out in advance and make decisions long in advance before uh, he can't just, you know, run right into the harbor and then at pool steam ahead and then put the brakes on. He's got to do yeah. it uh, at, a, at a different, more wise pace. Also, if two ships are coming like this and they uh -huh. both recognize that if they continue in that direction, they'll collide, then both ships only need to make their change to the rudder just a little bit so that they miss each other, right? This uh -huh. is something that we begin to understand is, is that the bind does not have brakes, but we can change the thought that we have. Once we begin to wake up to it, once we begin to see what's going on, we can start making some changes. And uh, personality then is not fixed. It's not set. That you can, in fact, change the direction that your life is heading. That you can operate the rudder just a little bit to make a change. And so in that regard, if you can learn to change your breathing intentionally, then you can also begin to change your mind intentionally. And if you can change your mind intentionally, then you can change your feelings intentionally. That this is what the whole practice of the Dhamma is all about. When one becomes a Dhamma dude, what that means is, is that he begins to uh, operate with a new life view, a new view of things, how things are, are constructed differently. Um, and that that view is basically the distinction between the normal view is things are going to be all right, but we got a lot of work to do. We got some repairs to work on. We got things to fix. And that's a different life's attitude. That's the, the normal attitude that people have. A lot of people have the idea of, oh, life is shit, and then you die, and I don't know what you can do for it. It's all just crap. But then there's the third kind of point of view, and that is everything's all right already. Everything is fine. There's no work to do, nothing to go. 
know where to do. Now, that just takes a kind of a small change in the way that this vessel is heading. Is it, oh, I, we can avoid that. All I have to do is just change the mind a little bit, steer off, and everything's going to be okay. But in fact, we don't actually have to run our freighter into the port, causing all kinds of damage. But a lot of people keep doing that. They keep doing it over and over and over again, thinking, what's wrong with my life? The answer is they don't know where the wheelhouse is. They don't know that they can actually change the way that they think. Now, the other part about that is, is that uh, we have habit patterns of the mind. And so these habit patterns mean that the mind will go back to the old way of doing things. And so we have to keep changing it over and over again to develop new patterns, to develop new habits. But once we develop the new habits, then it becomes really easy. Okay, so the, the concept then is uh, the Buddha talks about it in the sense that there's two kinds of thoughts. There are wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts. If we have unwholesome thoughts, those unwholesome thoughts will hinder us from being joyful. If we have wholesome thoughts, that will take us in the direction of joyful, especially if the wholesome thoughts are in particularly joyful, wholesome thoughts. And yet you don't spend a lot of time in joyful, wholesome thoughts. You have been spending a lot of your time in the same kind of thoughts that you learned from your mother. Negative thoughts. Thoughts that yeah. keep you from being happy. Okay. So you can see that if someone says, okay, well, I'm going to meditate. But in their meditation, they don't change the way that they're thinking. Then they're not going to get much out of the meditation. But if their meditation actually changes the way that they think from having a negative attitude to a positive attitude, and that goes big time in the sense that we normally start out as victims in our personality or in our worldview. The worldview is, is that the world is a dangerous place. You got to fight, got to work. You don't work, you don't eat. These are the kinds of things, in other words, there's tough goings ahead. This is the normal way of looking at one's life and that our society supports that. But a new way of thinking is, is that, hey, everything is great. There's no problems. The world is just fine. It don't need to be fixed. In fact, the big problem with the world is you got too many people out there trying to fix it. Each one in its own way. And so this person, person A is trying to make the, uh, the world look like A. And person B hates the way that the world looks when it looks like A. He wants it to look like B. Mm -hmm. And C doesn't like either A or B. And he wants the world to look like C. And so you have all of yeah. these internal conflicts. It's better to let those people have their conflicts with each other and not join their fight. That you can take a hike. You don't have to fix the world. The world's not really broken. If there's any brokenness, it's the people think that the world is broken, when in fact it's fine. Planet Earth will get along without humans pretty well. <laughs> The world got along without us before it met us, and it'll get along without us when we're gone. So if that's the case, then 
each individual one of us, like yourself, can create the world you want to live in. That in fact, it's already created. You already live in paradise. You already live in paradise, just like Adam and Eve. They were they lived in paradise. But what did they do? They mental. They ate of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Okay. Now, what does that mean? The aid of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But eating of the fruit means putting up with the results. And what are the, the results of is their knowledge of good and evil, which means their knowledge of good and bad or their ability to criticize. And here you are in your paradise. Going around criticizing it. Saying this is good and this is bad. But in fact, I, I do. I live in paradise. I've got a really nice paradise that I live here. This is a really nice tree, except for one thing, and that is it's got some yellow leaves on it. And so I'm planning actually to dig that tree up and tear it out because it's got yellow leaves. Yellow leaves don't belong in paradise, you know. And when I get rid of this tree, I got some other trees I'm going to dig up and throw out because they've got brown and yellow leaves too. If I dig up and tear out all the trees that have yellow leaves, then I'll have a really nice paradise, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see where this is going? We actually yeah. destroy our own paradise. Adam and Eve did not get thrown out of paradise. They destroyed it. Now, they didn't have to actually pull up any trees. All they had to do was judge the tree. And that's what destroys paradise is our judgments of it. And you live in a paradise. You live on uh, Puerto Rico already. That's the paradise. Yeah, I mean, it's a... I live on the beach. It's, it's a real paradise here. Yeah, so you I've live never... in paradise. Yeah. And here you are trashing the place with your own mind. Yeah. And it's it's funny because I, I always look at, at the negative things about the place. I always, I, I, all I do is complain about this place, like 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, well, if you're um, if you're complaining about a real paradise in uh, Puerto Rico that um, that you live in, how many uh, uh, what percentage of the time do you complain and criticize about the internal paradise you live in? Ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent, something up there, yeah. huh? But you recognize that you can change. Mm-hmm. That's the important thing is to change. Okay, so let's go from that perspective of Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda and unpack it just a bit. To unpack Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda brings us immediately to the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is to recognize that there is Dukkha. That does not mean that life is Dukkha. A lot of people will think that uh, uh, oh, the first Noble Truth is the Buddha says that life is Dukkha. Life is just life. Life is like the paradise. Dukkha is not life itself. 
dukkha is what people do with their life. That a lot of folks think that, in fact, um, that they are broken and that they need help and that they can get some help someplace else. Only the problem is, is that the real job that needs to be done can only be done inside. The example of that is, is that if a uh, piano student goes to the piano teacher for the lesson and the child is making a mistake while he's playing the piano, the teacher can hear that mistake and to help the child correct it, right? Mm -hmm. But if the child is just sitting there thinking and they're thinking of wrong thought, then who can help them? We cannot read the minds of other people which means that you're not going to find someone who can go into your brain and make repairs, that you're going to have to do that yourself. This is actually the second noble truth. The second noble truth is, cause, is called the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is what we do. Most people think that the cause of suffering is because of circumstances or because God did it. That I suffered because of the tsunami. In 2004, in December 2004, there was a huge tsunami out in the Adaman Sea. And that tsunami uh, hit all the places around. The place that I know about is Phuket. But now there's a video on YouTube about the uh, the animal trainers, uh, the elephant trainers, uh, what happened was is that the day before the tsunami hit Phuket, the animals, uh, the elephants became very very restless, started pulling on their chains and and uh, screaming and a lot of stuff like that, and the uh, the trainers knew that something was going on. So what they did was is that they unchanged their uh, animals. And some of them climbed on top of the backs and others followed along, but they wanted to see what the elephants were going to. And the elephants went up into the mountains as a herd. The whole herd went up there. The animal trainers let them go. They knew what was, they knew, they knew at least enough to know that the animals knew what they were doing. And then the tsunami hit and all the people on the beach were, <clears throat> had to deal with the tsunami. Okay. So in this regard, what we're talking about is, is that the elephants did not suffer because of the tsunami. That the people on the beach did not suffer from the tsunami when it hit. What they suffered from was ignorance. The elephants knew something that they didn't know and the elephants got out of the way. Is this making sense to you? <clears throat> uh, half and half. Okay, so if we can understand that the tsunami was not the cause of the suffering, it was the fact that people didn't get out of the way of it. Mm -hmm. Now, another example is, is that somebody hauls off with a great big punch and then throws a punch right at you. What are you going to do? If you're smart and you see what he's doing, you're going to let him miss you. You're going to duck. All right? But if you don't yeah. see that uh, that fist coming at you, it's going to hit you, right? Mm -hmm. This is the point that we're making is dukkha and dukkha naroda 
uh, the most important quality of dukkha is ignorance. We don't know what it is. And then it hits us and then we suffer. Or then we're inconvenienced. But if we can see things that are coming, then we can stand out of their way and they don't hit us. Mm -hmm. This is the major teaching of the Buddha for the second noble truth is ignorance is the cause of the suffering. And that we ignorantly want things that we don't have. Ignorantly wanting something that we don't have means that I want it and I don't get it and I want it and I don't get it and I want it and I don't get it and soon I get myself into a state of wanting something and I'm not even sure what it is that I want. I just want. And we don't recognize that that state of wanting is unsatisfying. If we can get ourselves into a state to where we don't want anything, then we're good to go. This is where wisdom comes in, is when we wise up to the fact that we want things that we don't have. And when we can see that we want things that we don't have, we can do one or two things about it. We can continue to want it and don't have it, or we can stop wanting it and be happy. I, I always looked at it as like, because um, I, I, I did hear about that before, about the 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 point of eastern philosophy is is the 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 problem is the want not the not the not having whatever you want the mm -hmm. problem is the source i, I mm -hmm. heard about it before but i, I i've never been material materialistic person i always uh, i always just wanted what i needed i i, I never i never You're wanted more than that material possessions but i'm not yeah I'm not that, 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 that that that's where the the nuance comes comes into my mind, and I'm I'm starting to get it. Well, there are four modes of clinging, and one of the four modes of clinging is materialism, and that's the one that you're thinking of. That you're not. What, what are the What are the other four? The other three. Well, one of them is clinging to the way things ought to be. Rights, rules, rituals, laws, you got to follow this, you got to do it this way. That's one of them. This is actually one of the most important one. The Buddha calls this Sila Bhatta Paramasa. I know that's the Pali word, we'll talk about it later. Sila Bhatta Paramasa means that we, um, when we're kids, we learn things in the sense of going along to get along. We're told to do things and we do what we're told to do as if that's what we're supposed to do. We grow up with a whole long list of supposed to's. The world is supposed to be like this. When the worker get, uh, works for his wages, he's supposed to be paid. Right? So all yeah. of these supposed to's we cling to and when anything doesn't fit with these supposed to's, that's the source of Dukkha. Just like not getting what you want, except that instead of not getting what you want in the material sense, now you don't get your wants in the sense of supposed to's. Mm -hmm. The child is supposed to answer her daddy like this, and when she doesn't answer him like that, then his supposed to's get in his way of the relationship between he and his daughter. So that's the second way. It's a really big one. 
is even is, bigger than materialism. Right. It's huge. There are many people I who get in, into material. Sorry, Go ahead. Sorry, it's it's crazy. It's just it's crazy how big it is. The second mm -hmm. one. Right. So um, we get into uh, relationships with the understanding about how things ought to be or how they should go. And when they don't go the way that we think that they should go, then we want them to go the way that we think they should go. And now we want something we don't have because things are not going the way that we wanted them to. Not according to our list of rules. But as we progress in the Dhamma, we begin to drop all of those rules and come up with just one rule for an entire life. Just one rule to manage all of reality. And what is that one rule? Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. That's the only rule what we is, have. Again, to see what when Dukkha Dukkha Naroda is the only rule that we need. In other words, when we see that things are unsatisfying, we begin to avoid them. We come out mm -hmm. of the dukkha by avoiding the dukkha. Just step aside. That's how we, yeah. we do it, is we don't have to fix it. We don't have to fix the girl because she's not talking to her dad correctly. It's the dad who needs to fix his ought to's. Okay, so that's the second one. The third mode of clinging is attachments to identifications. The identification. Yeah, we you uh, that happens from time to time. Internet connection. So uh, the third kind of clinging is to identifications. How we identify ourselves. How do we identify ourselves in the sense of um, one way that people do identifications is by identifying with what kind of job they have. So they identify as a lawyer, they identify as a doctor, they identify as a computer guru, they identify as this, that, or the other thing. But we also have a many different ways of identifying. We identify with a political party. I'm a this or a that. We identify with nations. I'm a, a citizen of this country. I'm a patriot of this country or that. And so how we identify with organizations and bigger things like religions. Um, basically, you could say that anything that has a symbol, a banner, an icon or an avatar. Anything that has a, has any kind of symbolic to it is something that we would want to put down. We want to put down all of our banners to not identify. For instance, the Republican Party has the identification of a little elephant with red and uh, uh, white stripes and stars and that kind of stuff. Because they've got that identification of that elephant, that whole organization is to be avoided. The same with the Democrats and their donkey, okay? Anything that has an identification or a banner. Why do I say that? 
because look at it. If you identify with a political party and that political party has a good day, then you'll have a good day. If that political party has a bad day, then you're going to have a bad day. Well, guess what? At every election, some wins and some loses on both sides. So there would be reasons for the Democrats to feel good and reasons for the Democrats to feel bad. So the, that means that the best that any of them will ever get is a mixed bag. The best you can hope for by identifying with any organization of any description is a mixed bag of dukkha. Mm -hmm. Unwholesome mixed with wholesome. That's the whole way of it. So if we identify with it, whether it's uh, identifying with the local church or the local street gang or identify as I am a human in the sense of I'm not an alien because there's that's the recent scare that they have now is is they uh you know UFOs are back flying saucers are here people are getting all freaked out about it why do they do that is because they're identifying I'm human and that is outside it's something else that in fact that's the whole quality of of um uh this um kind of clinging that we do and we can see that in fact this is instinctual you had one time uh earlier in our conversation saying that you don't know what's the difference between how we were born versus our learned behavior, this is where we begin to understand that, that there are instincts, and one of the instincts is the territorial instinct, along with the nesting instinct. These two instincts work together, but they're in conflict with each other. In fact, we've just been talking about both of them. The attachments to the way that things are supposed to be, that is, in fact, the herding instinct or the nesting instinct, in the sense that if you are part of the herd, then it's safer than if you're on the edge of the herd or outside the herd. So we, we operate from a herding instinct. We have the idea that we should do this together. This leaves us in, in the position of uh, going along to get along. And so this nesting instinct, this uh, attachments to rights, rules, rituals, and the way things that should be, it winds us putting us in a very lowly state that can be considered an animal, like a draft animal. When the, uh, in uh, Indian literature, when they talk about an animal state, a lot of people have the idea of a worm or an insect or something, but really the right way to look at it is uh, an animal that's a draft animal. We go along to get along. We do what we're told to do. This is because, why? Because we're actually following the rules. And so uh, this territorial instinct and the nesting instinct work together in the sense of inside the nest, those who follow my rules and do things my way are like me. They're part of my herd. They're part of my crowd. They're part of my tribe. Those people who do not follow my rules, who do not do the way things that I do, they're the other. They're outsiders. They're immigrants. They're aliens. And they are to be feared. 
And so we identify with this group and we join that herd and we take up that banner. Because our banner is uh, uh, making us part of this herd and being in that herd is safer than being outside. These are instinctual feelings that we have this deep inside part of our instinctual nature and that these things then are being manipulated by people who know how and the uh, the word that is used to do this manipulation of people's emotional states is called propaganda. We also have it another word for it, a more modern word called media. Or news. Where they are actually trying to get you to feel some way or another. In other words, if the Republicans can get all of their people angry and upset and confused and in a state of um, agitation about immigrants, then all of those people will go vote for the Republicans. So the Republicans actually operate with fear. They try to make people afraid, try to make people upset and angry. And if you can get people upset and angry and afraid, you can get them to vote. And they vote ignorantly because they don't know that they're being manipulated. Once you recognize that you're being manipulated by these political parties, you don't want much of anything to do with them anymore. Because what they're trying to do is manipulate into feeling bad enough to do what they want you to do. Which is going along to get along. This is the uh, uh, manipulations of the society for everyone manipulating our instincts. So, if you continue to let them do that, then you will continue to operate in that draft animal stage, wanting to be part of the herd, going along to getting along. And when you recognize um, that, hey, doing that is painful. So, basically, we begin to understand that a lot of what we've been doing, we were doing because we get a certain amount of gratification. We hold beliefs because it helps us to fit in with the group and get other advantages. But when we recognize that it's not just the um, the gratification, but there's also dangers, and we begin to wake up to those dangers. And when we see that there are dangers in the gratifications, now we can begin to plot our escape. Before we were trapped in that gratification, we were trapped by the gratification. Once we could see that these things are in fact dangerous then we can escape from that gratification. An example of that is having thoughts about, I hate my Aunt Susie. Oh, I hate that woman. I really love to hate that woman. But when I recognize, hey, it's really dangerous to get yourself worked up into that state of hate. And there's really nothing wrong with her anyway. In fact, the worst thing about her is what I don't like about her. And if I'd stop hating her, I would be better off. And when we begin to recognize that we'd be better off, we don't hate anybody. But that hatred actually comes out of the territorial instinct. Why? Because they're not like us. They don't follow our rules. Aunt Susie doesn't behave the way I want her to behave. I've got rules, you know. <laughs> and when she doesn't follow my rules, I feel bad. So it's not necessarily just about uh, materialism. We feel bad for all kinds of reasons. 
including the fact that other people don't do the things that we want them to do. And also other people are trying to control our behavior by manipulating our instincts. But when we're wise to that, our instincts are not necessarily so manageable. In other words, we are ignorant to the fact that we operate instinctually. And that people who are completely uneducated will uh, normally operate almost exclusively out of instincts, which means they operate out of herd mentality and are fairly easily controllable by big business, for instance. That wise people say, I don't need it. And ignorant people say, well, that's a big whoop to do. I ought to go buy that thing. But wisdom will yeah. say, hey, they're just advertising a big do whoop to do, and I'm all right without it. I don't need it. So we begin to think wisely. And the wisdom is the idea that we're already okay the way we are. This is what the whole Four Noble Truths is about, that there is not only this cause of suffering that we've gone a little bit into today, but there's also the third Noble Truth, and that is, is that there is a place where each one of us can go to, we all visit it occasionally, where we've got no problems. I mean, at least once today, you've had the, uh, kind of a sigh, oh, at least I don't have that to do anymore. That this is something to when guys come home for work, they'll plop down on the couch and relax for just a minute, just a second, maybe 10, 10, 15 seconds, and then the mind will start back up again. Okay, but we need to find ways of relaxing to get ourselves into a state of relaxation so that everything right now is okay. No work to do, nothing to place to go. I'm home finally. Let me just relax and have a moment. This is the third noble truth. It does exist. It happens. But for most people in the West, it happens only three, four times a day, only for 10 or 20 seconds. What we need to do is to expand this to make it bigger and longer and lasting. And how do we do that is by remembering and by practicing it. The practicing of that then is the four uh, is the eightfold noble path. What is the actual method? Now the, the the problem with the word path is is that everybody gets the idea that a path means we got to go long distance from here to there, long way. But basically, it's more of a method in the sense that all we need to do is just unlock the door that's right in front of us. That's all we need to do is just unlock the door right in front of us. So we put in the key, we turn the handle, we turn the latch, and we walk right in. That's basically all that needs to be done. One or two or three second operation. And yet most people will stand waiting for the door to open. Others will pound on the door. Others have no clue about where the door is when in fact it's right in front of them. And the real point is, is that no, it's really easy to open if you've got the right skills, you've got the right tools. So Eightfold Noble Path is not necessarily the right um, uh, path in the sense of a long distance to go, but it's something that we can do right now, right in this very moment. 
and we practice it over and over and over again. How can you get yourself into a state of relaxation immediately and then maintain it for a little while? This is what the real practice is all about, is having the skills to just take a deep breath and relax. Because <sighs> you already know how to do that. You just don't do it very often because you don't remember to do it very often. So that's the very first skill to, ba uh, to, to learn, is the skill to remember to do this. And it can be practiced. This is actually what we mean when people talk about meditation. They're actually talking about uh, sati, or the waking up process, to actually wake up to watch the breath. Because when we're not watching the breath, we're not woken up, we're just letting the mind wander wherever it does, living our normal lives, we're not much paying attention to anything. And that's why we keep having so many accidents. It's called keep running into things, because we're not watching where we're going. And why are we not watching where we're going is because we forget to watch where we're going because we're too busy thinking about the past. Or another way of thinking about it is the, uh, the reason why people keep running into things in front of them is because they keep looking in the rearview mirror. They're not looking at what's in front of them. They're looking or what's happening now. They're looking at what's happened in the past. And we spend a lot of time thinking about things that have already happened. And so we need to start making that change from thinking about the past, thinking about unwholesome thoughts, and start thinking wholesome thoughts. And the brace to do that is to remember to do that. Now, once we do that, we also, once we start to look at what we're thinking, we have to take on the right effort then to change it. This is the place where most people in meditation make the huge mistake because they're not warned about it. And so people will wind up being great, uh, wonderful meditation teachers with lots and lots of books and huge amounts of money, but they don't teach the students the number one thing the students need to know because they didn't learn it themselves. And this is the issue about right effort, that once you inspect the mind to see what is there is unwholesome. We have to take the effort to change it from unwholesome to wholesome thought. This is the number one thing then is the right effort and right sati. And in order to change it from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought, we have to recognize what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. So this is one's right view. One's right view is to know what is wholesome and not wholesome. And by doing so, it's a skill to be developed because over time, what we thought was wholesome now looks unwholesome. And so we don't do that anymore. And yet, in the beginning, we think that everything is okay, no problem, because we're not inspecting it very closely. So one's right effort then is in two ways. One is to change our overall viewpoint of things from, whole, from unwholesome to wholesome. But we do that every moment that we remember by changing the thought that we have from an unwholesome thought to the wholesome thought. So we start looking at our, our thoughts to see what kind of thought this is and what uh, it can be. Now, basically we can say in the beginning, well, What's a wholesome and what's an unwholesome thought? 
for the beginning student, the easy way to talk about that is, is that if it is right here, right now, and rightly joyful, it's a wholesome thought. And if it's about a person someplace else, not here, in the past, in the future, a plan, a job, something that you're not doing right now, then that would be unwholesome. And so we want to start thinking about what's happening right now. What's happening in this present moment? Well, one of the things that's happening, obviously, in this present moment is your breathing. So we could take a deep, long breath, a deep, happy breath. <gasps> Especially in the sense of thinking about uh, having some work to do. Let us say that you walk out uh, onto your porch, you walk out on the beach and you see something really ugly over there and you give your eye, yourself the idea, oh, I've got to go fix that. And then you start thinking about, well, I got to go to the store and buy this tool and that tool and get this work together and all of that so that I can fix it. And while you're doing that, you're not actually fixing it, are you? So in a way, thinking about that and every time that you look out your door or out the window or whatever and you see that thing that needs to be fixed you plan another plan i got to go fix that i got to go do that that's the normal way of thinking now the way the new way of thinking is to say guess what right now i'm not going to fix it because right now i'm not going to fix it that means right now i don't have to think about fixing it right now i can enjoy the fact that there it is unfixed and that's okay. There it is, whatever it is that I wanted to fix, I don't, I'm not fixing it right now, so I might as well enjoy the fact that there it is right now, unfixed. And so we're not actually fixing what is out there. What we're actually fixing is the mind. That, that whatever it is out there, it's okay. I don't have to fix it right now because I wasn't going to go fix it right now anyway. I was just burning my mind about fixing it. That's what we have to look at is the distinction between actually going and doing the work and doing it joyfully rather than thinking about the work that has to be done unjoyfully. Mm -hmm. One of them is the victim. The victim is the one who sees all the work that needs to be done and feeling bad about all the work that needs to be done. And the champion feels differently because he says, man, I'm the champion here and I'll fix that when I want to fix it. And right now I don't want to fix it. Therefore, right now it ain't broken. These, these actually now, we've talked about four items on the Eightfold Noble Path of the Buddha. And these what is four, the fourth one? Here we go. The first one is right view. You called me because of right view. You, you actually understand that there is something that needs to be changed here, something that can be fixed. Right? So that's one's right yeah. view. If we begin to investigate closely what is wholesome and unwholesome, that means that we will refine that view so that it'll get better and better. It's a skill to be developed. The second one is right sati. This is wake up. 
Sati has three qualities to it. It has the quality of intensity, a really big wake-up call as opposed to a little wake-up call. It also has to do with frequency in the sense of how often do I remember? And then the next part about it is, is that how fast is it? Once I'm paying attention to stuff, how quick am I to get it? So these are the three qualities, and these things will grow as you begin to wake up. You'll begin to pay attention to the wake up. Here's an example of the intent of the intensity or the strength. And that is, is that when you first wake up in the morning in bed, what's the very first thing that you do generally when you first wake up? Check the markets. Pardon? Check, uh, check the markets. Check you have the market in bed with stuff. you? Yeah. You have the market right there in bed with you? Yeah. So the, how, how is that possible? I open my phone and I check the market. Ah, so the first thing that you do in the morning is you grab your phone. Sometimes, sometimes the computer is already open. I, I just look at the markets. I go to okay. sleep with the computer open. There's been at least a hundred things that have happened between uh, when, uh, your first wake up and what you're saying is the first thing that you're doing. Let's go back a little quicker than that. You're very, very slow, to be honest with you. You've already gotten yourself out of bed. And I'm asking you, what's the very first thing that you do in, when you wake up in the morning? Breathe. Huh? Uh, okay. Now we're going someplace. Open huh? my eyes. Open right. my eyes. Okay. But you don't get out of bed. No. No. That's the whole point. So the sati that we're talking about is for the very, very beginner uh, is a kind of sati that's not very strong. It's sort of like waking up, but not getting up. Waking up, and most of what people will do and when they first wake up is they go back to sleep. Sometimes we wake up and we turn the snooze alarm on, and then we go back to sleep, right? This is what happens with beginning sati. After we wake up a couple of times, eventually we get up. All right. This is the kind of sati we need. It's not the sati that we just wake up and go back to sleep or that we wake up and we lay there. No, we want to wake up enough sati to get up. This is where sati and right effort work together. We got to just not just wake up to see what kind of thoughts that we have. We've actually got to get up and throw them out. We have to take the effort to change what we're thinking. To change it from mm -hmm. unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. So let's go over some wholesome thoughts that we could have. The Buddha talks about wholesome thoughts. Um, in various suttas, one of them, he talks about it as one's right effort to change unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. But in the Anapanasati Sutta itself, he uses the word that we refer to as gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. 
Now we're looking at a particular kind of wholesome thought when we look at it that way. The kind of thought that's going to actually bring you up to get you bright. A lot of people think about meditation uh, and sort of, let us say, an advanced meditation is that they go deep in meditation. We're not looking for going deep. We're looking for going bright. We're looking for waking up, not powering down. This is an important point. This is why we want to breathe well. We want to give the body oxygen. We want to brighten it up. We want to breathe out breath very well so that we can exhaust the carbon dioxide that's being built up in the system by not breathing well. And so we take long, deep breaths. But in doing so, also, we're not uh, just stopping the mind. We're also continuing to talk. But the kind of thoughts, thoughts that we have will be thoughts that are gladdening the mind, like, wow, this is a really nice breath. Or something like, as I breathe in, I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I relax, I relax. As I breathe in, I breathe in, I feel so good. And as I breathe out, everything is okay. Nothing to do, no place to go. Everything is hunky-dory. Everything is okay. Not a care in the world. And these are the kind of thoughts that we need to have to, to brighten the mind, to gladden the mind, that we're capable. We could do anything. I could clean out my mind. That's, in fact, the, possibly the most important recognition that we can have. And that is, hey, I can clean out my mind and bring myself to this happy state of everything's okay. This is a really good breath. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Everything's going my way. Not a cloud in the sky, not a worry all day. No place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass grows by itself. So this is the kind of new attitude that we're generating. The attitude that, hey, man, we've got this wired. Everything is all right. Whatever that junk was out in the yard that needs to be fixed, there it is, and that's okay. And I don't need to fix it right now, not today. Okay. This is how we begin to practice, okay? These four things, and we do it with Anapanasati, but the Sati part is to remember, to remember that this is a long, deep in-breath and to remember that this is a long, deep out-breath, so that we're bringing up sati often, once on an in-breath, once on an out-breath. We bring up sati to gladden the mind, to remember that everything is okay, everything is fine. Remember to talk ourselves into feeling good. You've, been, you've spent your whole life, you've learned it from your mother. You learned how to make yourself feel bad by talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. Okay. This, is, this is the way we practice. Now, a lot of people think that, that meditation is to sit down for an hour or so and practice really intensely. But the better thing to do is to plan on doing that hour about six times a day for 10 minutes. 
just to sit and say, okay, for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to get myself into a marvelous state. And you put start putting yourself into a really nice state six times a day. And pretty soon you begin to start filling in the gaps. So this is how we begin to practice is to remember, we've got to change the mind. We've got to gladden the mind to get it out of its uh, misery and to get it into a really happy state. And the way that we do that is recognizing everything's already okay. Everything is fine. No worries, no problems. We need to keep practicing that because if you don't practice, all the bad things will start coming back. Oh, I got to fix this. Oh, I got to do that. Oh, I got to go over there. Oh, mom was right. The world is terrible. And I got so much work to do. But those are the normal thoughts that we have. And so you're in the habit of having those thoughts. And so we have to remember, sati, to remember. Everything's okay. I don't have anything to worry about. Nothing to do. No place to go. Everything is hunky-dory. So about six times a day for about 10 minutes, you can do it when you first wake up. You don't even have to get out of bed. The first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, instead of checking the stock, check the real stock. Check to see, oh, can I get myself into a really nice state right now before I go look at the computer, before I even open the cell phone, let me open my mind and do that for about five minutes. And then I'll get up. Yeah. Then when you go call in bed at night, before you go to bed saying, oh, I've got to get up. I got so much work to do tomorrow. The other kind of thoughts to have is, oh, I got no place to go, nothing to do. I could just lay here in bed, just enjoy myself. Nobody's going to bother me and I'm not going to bother me for the next eight hours. I got no place to go and nothing to do. Everything is hunky-dory. Everything is just fine. And so we practice that way too. And then several times during the day, we keep remembering everything's fine. Everything is beautiful. Everything is so joyful. I do have a paradise here, you know. <laughs> this is paradise. Why don't I see it that way? Why don't why do I have to keep saying that my paradise is broken? And there's no problem. I live on the beach, you know. <laughs> so this yeah. is the way to start practicing. So go practice that, Ray. Do that for a couple of days and then call me again and we'll continue on with our discussions. But sure, I, I'll be I'll be actually uh, during the conversation I thought about it and I'll be very happy if you upload this to YouTube. Okay. That's great. Excellent. Well, yeah. we'll see you in a couple of days, maybe three or four up to a week, whatever you feel like, but go practice feeling good. Practice taking deep breaths and enjoying those breaths. I mean, it's so wonderful to breathe. I don't know why people don't like it more. They're addicted to it. They still don't even know that they like it. Yeah. If you don't believe me, if you don't think that you like breathing, stop doing it for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Just to check it out to make sure that, oh, wait a minute, this next breath is going to be a really good one. And when you recognize, oh, this breath is going to keep me alive. This is going to make me vibrantly alive, tingly alive, great feelings if I'd only breathe well. 
But when we're afraid, when we see problems, then we begin to hide from them. And by hiding, we're in fear and begin to shut down. And so our breathing collapses and we go shallow breath. This is why the Buddha recommends we've got to breathe. You've got to take a deep breath. Allow yourself to be really alive. Wakey, wakey. Brighten up. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Ray, we'll see you. See you soon. Sure, sure. Good Thanks a lot. I really, I really do appreciate it. This is, this is amazing. You really enlightened me. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'll glad to hear that. Sure. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Have a good day, man. All right, now. We'll see you, Ray. Good to meet you. Good to meet you, too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.